I will be honest, preparing to write this sermon this week uh, made me sadder than I have been in a while. The older I have gotten, the more I've studied God's word, the more of this world I have experienced and witnessed, the more aware I have become of how far away from God we are as a nation. And the confluence this week of the events in our country and the heart of our text has revealed to me the breadth and the depth of the chasm between who we are and who we could be and should be if we lived as God desires. And that has been revealed in such a way that it has led to deep distress. As much as anywhere in our society, this chasm between us and God reveals itself in the way that we have set up and come to prioritize our entire economic structure. When we compare what is happening in our society and the way that we even talk about it with what God reveals about economics in this morning's text, we see that we have put things completely backwards. In the United States, those in positions of power and policy believe that people serve the economy. For God, the economy is meant to support the community. Listen again to the system <clears throat> that Moses proclaims as God's economic plan. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. That's it. The only qualification given to this decree is in verse 3. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel debts, any debts your brother or sister owes you. Even that qualification is not as bad as it sounds. The word translated here, foreigner, is not the same as used for foreign resident. This is somebody who is in Israel, in the promised land, likely, most likely, to be trading. Foreigners referred to here are mostly traders who were people of means. Everyone else is to be freed of all debt every seventh year. Moses even goes so far as to warn against those who might withhold loaning any money as it gets closer to the year of canceling debts. You caught that. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. Hmm, the seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near, so... As Moses said, you don't loan and don't and you you show ill will on the as the the opposite to your brother or sister and you give them nothing. Moses proclaims that kind of thinking, that kind of greed as wicked and evil. In fact, it amounts to a crime against the person in need. Moses says, if you do that, 
That person may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. We also know from other scriptures that charging interest on loans, even charging interest on loans, was forbidden. And every 50th year, the year of Jubilee, all land reverted to the original family holders. All of these provisions were merely the minimal laws to be obeyed. God's economic system is ultimately to be ruled by a spirit of generosity, not a strict rule of the law. Again, hear God's word to us through Moses. If there is a poor person among your brothers and sisters, and again, this is brothers and sisters in a wide scope, your neighbor being, again, a wide scope. Basically, if there is a poor person in the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor siblings. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need, whatever they need. Verse 10. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. And then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. Verse 11. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and sisters, toward the poor and the needy in your land. I love how graphic these images are. Do not be hard-hearted. Do not be tight-fisted. But rather, in God's economy, we are called to be open-handed, to give generously. And Moses is adamant about these things. Last week, I mentioned that one of the ways to express emphasis and intensity in written Hebrew was to use two versions of the same verb side by side. And Moses does that here in these four verses more than anywhere else in all of Deuteronomy. Four times in four verses, all related to God's people being generous. Essentially, it is be openly open-handed, lendingly lend, givingly give, openly open-handed for a second time. And this way of economics continued with Christ as well. Notice what constitutes godliness in our gospel reading. The rich person comes and says, I've done you know, all these great things, uh, what what do I need to do to make sure I get eternal life, that I have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, it's great that you haven't killed anybody and done these other things, but one thing's left, sell everything and give it away to the poor. Then you will have riches in heaven. Come, follow me. This was the last thing the rich, the official expected to hear. He was very rich and became terribly sad. He was holding on tight to a lot of things. That's one of the reasons why I like the message translation, how it connects with Moses's. Don't be tight-fisted. Be open-handed. 
seeing this reaction, Jesus said, do you have any, and this is to his disciples, followers of Jesus, do you have any idea at all how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter into God's kingdom? It's easier for us to stick a camel through the eye of a needle than to get a rich person into God's kingdom. Notice where the onus is. The onus is on the rich to share with their wealth in order to be considered godly. And in John's letter, John is brutally direct. This is how we know what love is, by what Jesus has done for us. Jesus gave everything, including laying down his life for us, John writes. And we ought to do the same. We ought to lay down our lives even for our brothers and sisters. If anyone, and then he gets very specific, if anyone has material possessions, including money, wealth of all sorts, and sees their brother or sister in need and has no compassion towards them, doesn't do anything about it, how can the love of God be in that person? John is saying, if we see someone in need and we don't share, and we aren't generous and open-handed if we don't have compassion, then we need to check and examine ourselves whether we are truly even followers of Christ or not. We in the United States have gotten it all wrong. And when I say we, I mean people whom I embody, white and male especially. In our capitalistic free market economy, people serve the economy. We value profit over people. And again, don't go by what people say always. Go by what people do. Again, John says that as well. It's not about just words. It's also about actions. This has been true from the very start of white people in this country. We stole land from the human beings who were already living here. We enslaved black human beings for their labor. We literally bled their life out of black human beings to build and hoard wealth for white human beings. And we still structure our economy with profit over people. In 2008, we gave billions of dollars to bail out banks that had gambled away the life savings of hardworking human beings, but we didn't bail out those human beings' pension plans, their mortgages. Two years ago, we gave away, we gave to corporations $2.2 trillion in tax breaks, which they used almost exclusively to buy back stock and increase their own wealth and share value. And now, when millions in our country are going hungry, when millions can't pay their bills, can't buy food even, we say, oh, you should have saved for a rainy day. And we force them to literally risk their lives to go back to work 
because we say we can't afford to stay shut down and keep you safe. Just a few weeks ago, the White House economic advisor, Kevin Hassett, referred to human beings as human capital stock. I started out writing this sermon sad, but now I'm livid. In the way of God, the economy serves the people in order to build community, not corporations. I'll let Walter Brueggemann speak in a more articulate way than I was able to at the time that I was writing this sermon because my blood pressure was so high. This is an extended quote from Brueggemann because this point is absolutely crucial. This economic provision that Moses writes of is radical, Brueggemann says, for it shatters the conventional practices of loans, credits, interest, mortgages, and debt management by which any conventional market economy functions. Creditors have a relationship to debtors in God's management in God's community that transcends shared economic reality. Among members of this community, economic realities are not definitional. Moses affirms the solidarity of the landed with the landless and vulnerable. The statute insists that the landed have in their economic horizon precisely the reality, the need, and love this, and the entitlement of the landless. God declares that the landless are entitled, that entitlement is God-ordained. The assumption of these texts is that social transactions in Israel are never between two parties, but always take place in the presence of Yahweh. The, thir the third party who will powerfully sustain the entitlements of the poor against the rich. The imperative cannot be mistaken. This is redistribution of wealth in an act of reparations, a transfer of wealth from those who have amassed it to those who have none. The teaching is willing to override conventional common sense economics in the interest of creating and sustaining a viable social fabric in which all members have the means to participate effectively. The economy must yield to the viability of the community. The economy must yield to the viability of the community. Amnesia invites the assumption that the current dramatic distinction between haves and have-nots, between creditors and debtors, has always been this way, with no need to make an adjustment or concession. But this provision of debt cancellation is not an isolated act. It is the centerpiece of an alternative vision of covenantal economics that is to define the covenant community, God's community. The primary implication of the text is that the economy must be a subset 
of a neighborly fabric and must be made to serve and enhance that neighborly fabric. The resolve of Deuteronomy 15 is to assure that there will be in covenanted Israel, in God's people, no permanent underclass that is hopelessly and perpetually in debt. And he closes, what a society does about debt, how creditors manage debt, how debtors are respected or reduced to long-term despair and eventually violence are the most likely indicators about whether there will be shared common peace and prosperity or whether there will be prosperity only for the creditors surrounded by a restlessness among debtors that keeps the entire community in turmoil, under threat, and lacking peace. He wrote these things years ago about this passage from Moses, but that is the United States, our society today. But it is not God's economics. Think of how much different things would be if all student debt was waived away today. Think of how different things would be if the trillions of dollars, trillions, multiple trillions of dollars the government has come up with for wars in Iraq and Afghanistan over decades and bailouts for corporations. Think if all those trillions of dollars had been used to bail out communities instead. Think about how different our country would be if we had paid reparations to our indigenous and black families from whom we took land, labor, and life, we wouldn't have to wonder if we as a society had been living as God, God guides us to. I thank God that I am a pastor for a congregation that is soft-hearted and open-handed. I am so thankful for this congregation and the way that where, when there is need, what can we do is the response. And we do things. I know that together our hearts are broken for all those in need in our society. So this morning, be encouraged in all that you and we are doing on behalf of others. It is God's way. Be encouraged. And may we continue to do everything in our power to build a society based on God's economics, not an economy that the people must serve, but an economy that serves all people. That is biblical economics. Thanks be to God.